I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. Welcome to What's Next. Today, our guest, Hagar Hafez. She's the manager of organizing and strategy for Western New York for the New York Immigration Coalition. Hagar, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jay. Hagar, a lot to talk about. Uh, you're, um, just because of the, of, of the nature of your work, I mean, it really touches upon a lot of things that we're hearing about in the news, most certainly right. on a national basis for sure. But we want to focus, to start at least, on language access. Yes. Because this is, has, has a kind of a twofold connection. Mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, the county executive uh, vetoed the uh, Erie County Language Access Act, which would have, uh, uh, we can get into what that would have done. And also on the New York level, you, your group is also uh, lobbying the state for certain legislation right now. Let's just talk about language access. Give us just a general understanding of what we're talking about here. Absolutely. So in general, language access is access to everything, mm-hmm. right? It's access to healthcare, school system, maybe a court date, your immigration status, anything. Um, really what it is, is giving someone the ability to communicate and voice and advocate for themselves. That looks very different person to person, depending on your experience as a human in life, right? So um, depending on your identity, right? So our black and brown immigrants go through a lot advocating for themselves when they come here because not only are they trying to navigate, you know, a new system, but they're also trying to navigate systemic barriers. So pretty much that that is what language access is. It's, it's being able to advocate for yourself, for your family, being able to... Uh, say something as little as um, your basic needs, right? So it, so on the state level, mm-hmm. a lot of the work you've been doing, we're looking to make it so certain types of, I guess, state-mandated things like a driver's license, for example, right, are accessible for multiple people with, uh, with who are speaking languages other than English are their main language, correct? Absolutely. So what uh, what legislation is on tap right now? Because I know we're right in the middle of that season here in Albany, aren't we, right now with yes. uh, lobbying? As a matter of <laughs> fact, you shared with me some of your lobbying stories uh, uh, from just yesterday. You, you're a very busy person from Albany back to Buffalo. What what's on, What is on the docket? What's out there right now that's, uh, that's being talked about? Um, the Language Access Expansion Act, right? So that state-level legislation um, could help with so many things, right? So I think I shared with you, I was an interpreter. That was my first job in the United Mm -hmm. States. And um, interpreters typically work per diem. Um, They might have one appointment, two appointments, three appointments a week, and they get paid an hour. And, you know, it is no way to sustain a full-time job 
right? So that is part of it. Another part is you have um, immigrant populations. Obviously, the 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 main language of the United States is not English. In fact, hmm. um, so America does not have an official language. Okay, that's right. America which, doesn't have official language, right? Right. So, Although if you, there might be some rhetoric that might uh, imply otherwise, but I, I, I that's right. <laughs> right, but. Um, with our very diverse population in New York State specifically, but also all over the United States, um, you know, immigrants oftentimes or non-English speaking population um, oftentimes rely on either their children, their neighbors, or if, you know, an interpreter has been assigned to their appointments or not. That could be healthcare appointment, that could be a DMV appointment, school, whatever it is. Um, that is the interpretation part. The translation part is when you get translation is basically the written form okay. and interpretation is the spoken form. Oh, okay. All right. Very good. So when it comes to translated documents like school letters or let's say your kid missed an immunization um, and the school wants to communicate to you or your kid is being suspended or whatever, um, those letters typically are or are supposed to be translated in the first language of that person's, you know, family um, to get them to understand what's going on. That goes along with court notices and anything else that could be like a life or death situation, essentially, or even an emergency, you know, um, situation like COVID or the blizzard that happened and you need to send a notice to people that needs to be in their language. Um, so what this uh, state level legislation is trying to do is create a twofold solution of where we want to create um, a stronger bilingual workforce by creating a language justice cooperative. So a translator and interpreter cooperative. And that we want to pilot in a region first and then have that be all over. Hopefully there are some uh, language cooperatives that exist already in New York City. Um, but none here in Western New York right now? No. Okay. No. Okay. And then that's really, uh, we would love for it to be in Western sure. New York, but it's not attached to a region yet. Um, but really what this is trying to do is, like I said, create a twofold solution of where we have an empowered group of interpreters, translators that are able to do the work full time and support their families and kind of em empower them to own their own craft, right? Because it is a hard skill. Um, another thing we are trying to do is create opportunities to um, better the quality of the interpretation and translation. So with either Google Translate or, you know, anybody interpreting from your neighborhood, you might get really bad quality mm. interpretation, which could be detrimental in, in healthcare Especially scenarios. Or legal notices, yeah. Mm -hmm. Or legal, right? right? Um, you know, one of, one of the stories that um, uh, one of our member organizations, you know, I, there's a colleague there that we work with very closely. Uh, she's a wonderful speaker and she testified in the Erie County um, language access, but she always shares the story of how her dad was because of like inadequate interpretation uh, was going to lose his life because he had a shrimp allergy and he was in uh, a county hospital and he you know was having a heart attack mm. and he was misdiagnosed and like given the wrong you know given the wrong words and and that was detrimental to his own health and 
that's that's kind of another part of it is we want to dedicate some of the the money that we're asking for towards training opportunities for interpreters and translators and towards growth we want to give quality interpretation and translation um Another part of it is, you know, funding the office of the state office of language access. There is this current state office of language access. Yes, it is a that? new office. All right. Yes, um, they. But are it's doing, not fully funded. It it you know it receives uh, annual funding. Okay. So part of this is for them to get their annual funding, um, increase their implementation efforts. We are trying to work also on you know holding holding people accountable because you can put laws in places but we want to have better systems of like a a way to complain or a way to be like I have not received adequate interpretation translation here so yeah um our state bill tries in in multitudes um of ways to like fill in many gaps right to to and it is a start it is not the end all be all right. solution. I think we need at this point every federal mandate, every county mandate. We need every state mandate. And not one of them can fix a language access issue. It's all of them. I'm curious about your experience as, a, as an interpreter. Uh, what, do, what languages or was just uh, what language were you interpreting or were there multiple ones? Um, I was focused on Arabic okay. and English. All right. Um, Arabic is my mother tongue. So um, when I when I came here to the U.S. and I had received my work permit and I was in school at the time, so I was a full time full time student, student at UB, <laughs> getting two degrees, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, the, right. Yeah. Right, okay. Um, and yeah, very busy and you know still new to the country, helping out my parents navigate the system and obviously interpret and translate everything. And I had a little brother um, also that I was helping navigate the high school system here. Um, so it was a lot for someone who had no idea what, what's going on, right, right? right? And at the same time, I was like, okay, well, I need to support my family. I need to support myself. Um, I was taking out loans for, for school, private loans. Mm-hmm. But um, right. I, was, I was, you know, trying to make it work with whatever I had. And I was like, okay, well, the only skill I have is my language. Right. So let's see what I could do with that. And I was already helping my parents, like I said, interpret, translate for any legal appointment for any, you know, any, any type of appointment, healthcare, all of it. So I was like, okay, let me, let me do that as a profession. I was interviewed at Journeys and Refugee Services. Um, I had an oral exam and, you know, and then I moved on to be an interpreter. It was appointment based. So I tried to you know, do that with my schooling. Like whenever I'm not attending a class, I'm out interpreting. And (laughs) because I was so busy at school, sometimes I wouldn't even know where I'm going until like a minute before. (laughs) Okay. So I actually enjoyed that, right? So I never worked at the same place twice. Um, I tried to take as many certifications as I can for medical appointments, court appointments, You had to get certifications for each? Not, uh, well... A certification training program, not really like certified. But you didn't have some sort of training Training. for each of these, okay? Correct. I was trying, you know, to like really understand. Because you're just learning a lot of this as as well, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. it it is a hard job. There's, you know, in interpreting, and that's why I'm mentioning the places we went at, like sometimes it's a physical therapy appointment. Sometimes I ended up being at a psychiatric hospital. Sometimes I was at a person's home and, and, you know, their child has cancer. Sometimes... I was um, at a hearing appointment. I 
you know, one of the one of the I had very interesting appointments. One of the most interesting one we had um, a, a person who spoke Arabic sign language, and um, her father was able to communicate to her, and then the doctor was able to communicate to me, and I was able to communicate to her father. So wow. we went. We were sitting in a circle. And we were helping her learn um, American Sign Language. Wow. Yeah. So that was a very interesting appointment. Um, I, I had a lot of school appointments. You know, I, I helped with Regents exams. I Yeah. So, like, it honestly, I it helped me learn so much because I was just in so many different situations. And people would just open up. So sometimes while, you know, we're sitting down... Um, people would share stories with me and that's when I learned that interpretation is way more than just I'm telling someone what someone else is saying obviously I'm a fly on the wall but when they shared their stories with me I remember being like I'm never forgetting one of those not one um, because also Arabic speaking population is from what 26 different countries sure um, and you had you know, therapy appointments for someone whose leg was blown off in, in war. And then you had another for a woman who was tortured for 16 years. Like, and, and, and people were sharing these stories with you. Yeah, I love talking to people. I remember so, when... But was there... Uh, go ahead. Was, so. it, was there already, when you came in to... Obviously, in some cases, this is the first time you met the person. Were they quickly ready to trust you just because you spoke their language? Or is it something... It, something else that has to take place in that dynamic that makes a person trust you because obviously they're relying on you considerably to make sure that you know you've got everything correct yeah absolutely i think you're right on i think it's both um someone we we have a saying back home that if you speak to a man's heart you're speaking in his language mm. And if you're speaking in the, to their mind, you're speaking to them in a foreign language. Hmm. And I think that already puts the barriers down because they're like, okay, this person sees me on some level. But also I think it's, it's the, the, the people. Like you have to know how to talk to people and just be there, be a person and put your heart in it. And, and they are going through a lot, right, in that moment, like, in some of the situations, if you have someone there who has been tortured for 16 years, carried that trauma, came to the United States, you have to work fast. You have to support your family. You have to navigate the system, right? And you're sitting there without a heart. Of course, you're going to get a different interaction with that person who's been through a lot. But if you sit there with your heart and you're like, hey, I'm here and I'm more than just a worker. I want to, I'm here. I'm a person. They'll share. I, I actually was was just going to share with you a story of where we were in a um, physical therapy appointment. Okay. And this woman who had been tortured for a really long time was communicating that she can't sleep. Um, she, you know, she's suffering. She's going through all of that. And the therapist, um, no fault to her, but she is from a different culture, right? And, excuse me, she was like, trying to tell her how you know if maybe your negative mindset it's changed to a positive mindset and you believe in this and that your physical health will get better and I interpreted obviously and said everything I could and the woman 
was trying to argue for herself and be like, I am really going through it and I feel like you're not understanding me. You're not seeing me. Sure. At some point, the woman started crying so much and she told me, she was like, Hagar, I feel like you understand me. Why can't this woman understand me? Why can't she see that I'm going through pain and just changing my mindset about it will not help me? I have physical marks on my body. I have physical aches and they're not going to go away, right? And I remember in that appointment just feeling like, yeah, this is why interpretation is way more than what just a person is saying to you. Curiously, that's a... um Incredible story, of course. And like you said, you're at psychiatric hospitals. What about any legal yeah. uh, uh, cases that you had to uh, uh, assist in terms of uh, uh, interpretation? Yeah, very much. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, when I worked at Journey's End um, as a case manager and, and as an interpreter, a lot of the time if you're a bilingual um, person and you have a job, you obviously will go and interpret or, you know, which which is another thing that we're trying to do with this cooperative. We we want people who are bilingual to be paid for being bilingual. Right. And it's not just skill. be right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I would go and, and interpret for many legal appointments and um like I said before, it it, it is what someone is going through. So legal appointments are very hard. You have all of this paperwork that is completely heartless, that is asking you very, you know, questions that are very cold. They're not very humanizing questions. And you have a person who's trying to communicate tremendous trauma and translate it somehow into this work, into this metric, into this box. And I think the most talented of attorneys are those who are able to balance the heart and mind at the same time and are able to talk to people about their trauma without having to, you know, trigger them or make them experience difficulty. Sure. Yeah. So interpreting those those um, were, were difficult for that reason. Did you have to uh, any police situations where you maybe had to serve as an interpreter or not, not necessarily? Um. Not really. Only on I can a imagine personal... how intense that might be. Right? Oh yeah. Well, that's that's another story. We 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 would love if people are able to advocate for themselves with the police. I I only have done it on a personal family level. When my dad recently got into an accident and he called me in tears and he was like, "I'm I'm scared. Mm. What do I do? How do I talk to the police? Can you help me?" And you know, it it is hard. It's very uh, intimidating. Um, what's next this morning? We're talking to Hagar Hoppe as uh, manager of organizing and strategy for Western New York for the New York Immigration Coalition. Uh, really uh, taking a conversation here about language access and kind of expanding it. But I think it's, uh, it's a fascinating conversation that's helping us to kind of understand what's really going on uh, when it comes to and, and how easily it can be lost what people are going through if, in fact, they can't, you know, uh, navigate through the through the many processes that require uh, English uh, English uh, speaking here in, uh, in in Western New York, for sure, of course, and, and across uh, the state, um, what about uh, it's? A, let's talk a little bit about lobbying in Albany because you're you're busy over there, and you were telling me yesterday uh, how you went yesterday, how how um, the lobbying often utilizes. Some of these, some people probably, like you were just talking about here, people who have 
live this experience mm -hmm. and are trying to not only make it better for themselves, but for others as well. What, mm -hmm. What's the response like when you, you're talking to lawmakers? I'm kind of curious. When you bring uh, these community members in and who have these personal stories, do you, do you see uh, a connection? Um, I definitely see a, a, a connection. Okay. I feel like it is so hard for, for people to not connect to a, a human who is sitting there telling you about their situation in a way where you could picture it and, and really that what it is is an empathy exercise, right? So I can sit here and talk to you about, you know, with, with what my work is in a very different manner. And you would take it in a different manner, right? You would just see it as these big words and, you know, yeah, whatever, you're trying to pass a law, good for you. But on the other hand, I'm sharing with you something you could see yourself in, right? And that's what we try to do, especially with impacted folks. They are constituents, right? Immigrants are constituents. They are taxpayers. They are contributors to society, right? And those are things you know, we, we want to show, but we also want to show that they are human. They are here because of things that me and you and anybody else is also susceptible um, to going through, right? And I think that's, me as an organizer, that's what I try to convey and that's what I try to tell people to, 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 to say when, they, when they're focused on their stories is what we're trying to show is you know, I think the culture of um, stability and control, right? If, if that makes sense. Stability and control, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So when you are in a place where you know, I, I actually stability and control for me resembles the suburb, the the idea of a suburb, because we don't have you know something of the sort back home. Okay. They're very quiet. All right. Right. They're very predictable. Mm -hmm. So you don't suspect something going wrong. And if, if there is, the, the reaction is very big, right? And why? Because the expectation is something is always going to be right. And I think what communities of color, whether in the United States or abroad, go through is a state of unpredictability all the time. Mm. A state of potential loss all the time. And what that means is your, your, your kid could leave the house and not return. Your father, the same. Your house could be gone in seconds. Your memories, you might have to leave behind. And I think without a human story in that room, saying these things, the person in front of us might have never experienced that type of loss and would not on their own be able to know what that's like unless they sit in front of, if you're a mother and sitting in front of another mother who lost their child to war, then you would understand, if that makes sense. It makes a tremendous amount of sense. I've never heard the, the connection quite put like that, but that's, that's uh, well stated for sure. Um, so what laws are you lobbying for then? What, what, uh, what is part of the lobbying effort right now in Albany? Yeah, so um, we are right now working on our priorities. We have some budget priorities that we're trying to push right now because, you know, it is budget season. It is budget season. And then we're going to work on our legislative priorities. Our first priority currently is access to representation and increase in legal funding. Um, we are trying to have 
basically immigrants who are in removal proceedings, who are in deportation, be able to have an attorney, access to representation. A lot of the time, children or minors have to represent themselves before court, right? Sometimes without interpretation. Minors without interpretation in a court proceeding. Yeah. One of our people in our lobby group was talking about how a two-year-old had to present themselves. A two-year-old? Yep. I know. So that is why we're trying to, you know, it it is a budget ask. But what we are really trying to do is have a long-term vision of what legal services for immigrants could look like in the future, right? One thing that we have seen is, um, you know, when we have a crisis for a specific population, there's money given for that specific population. And then we, a lot of the agencies have to hire an attorney just for, let's say, the Ukrainian um, crisis or okay. just for the Afghan crisis be- to use that state money to serve these people. What then happens is that this is not a long-term full-time attorney because that is usually done in a year or two because it's a response, right? But what we see is there are tons of um, migration trends and a lot of reasons why people are here. And we want inclusive funding. We want longer-term solutions. We want to have really one of the biggest challenges for access to representation right now is that there's just not enough lawyers Hmm. and we want to train more. We want to have more, you know, because right now people are being pulled from their caseload to be like, hey, do you have any capacity to represent this person? And oftentimes there's tons of wait lists and they just simply cannot. And when we're talking about lawyer, we're talking about lawyers that are trained in immigration issues. Correct. Right. So uh, a a general practitioner lawyer probably can't help you out in that regard. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure I understood that <laughs> for sure. So, uh, so that, that's, that's a, the top priority. So that's a big, but so, so back to it then, I don't know if you have numbers or if you can just characterize, but how many people are finding themselves in those situations right now where there are, if they don't have some sort of representation, they're probably going to be deported. There are thousands of people and there's actually a specific number out there that I cannot recall right now, um, but it's yeah, thousands of people. I could I could definitely get back to you on that. Well, that's fine. No, I'm, yeah. I'm just I'm, I guess I'm I'm trying to just understand the scope of what we're looking at right now. I mean, we hear again these you know the kind of a national conversation about uh, people seeking asylum at the at the southern border. Right. Uh, there's not enough uh, judges hearing you know there are cases and things along those lines. I'm I'm trying to I'm getting us oh, off yeah. off case here a little bit, but the point of which is. It's a legal scenario that is not functioning for a lot of different reasons. And in this particular case, because there just aren't enough lawyers to to, uh, get involved in the situation. Absolutely. And the number is very large. And that's the thing we have. We have organizers like myself assigned to each of those just because, you know, the, the data is so much and there's so much to do, so much work and, and education around it. We want to we do everything as organizers from getting testimonies, getting people to lobby, to informing people. We, we have people who are just in charge of know your rights and who are able to, to you know, communicate the, the extreme need for these things. But yeah, that's our first priority. Our second mm-hmm. is language access, right. statewide language access that I just talked about. Um, we also are trying to fight for the New York for All, which would help protect families um, from having police conspire with ICE 
um, and then, you know, having themselves uh, detained or deported. Uh, we also are working on working families tax credit. We also are working on housing access voucher program. So we're working on a lot. You've got a lot going on. Yeah. But at the same time, there must be, and I'm, I'm just be, I want to just jump back to the deportation scenario for a second here. Are there cases where we're seeing people de- being deported and it, 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 legal situations are never simple, mm-hmm. but where perhaps it was just a simple matter that if there was an attorney present, that the deportation would never have happened? Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's 60% of, of represented cases win asylum cases. And a lot of the time what we want is people are trying to apply for asylum. They, they, people want to be, you know, a lot of undocumented people want to apply for a legal status and they need representation in order to do that. Or they have an upcoming court case, like I said, whether it's a minor and whatnot. And, and we have local orgs that are, you know, because Batavia is like right there, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And we have local orgs who are dedicated to finding lawyers for people, but there's only so much they can do. But yeah, people, people, you know, it is a simple matter. Like you said, a lot of people find themselves in these situations just because they're going to work and they're not even driving, but they get ID'd or something of the sort. Um, so. I'm curious about the general climate right now when it comes to immigration. And I'm talking about kind of the, the ecosystem or, or whatever, the political atmosphere, however you want to look at it. Um, you're in Albany, so you see it from one perspective. And then, of course, you're a resident of, of Western New York. Talk about what, how receptive or welcoming or, or perhaps maybe even hostile um, responses are sometimes when when maybe say you're in, in the state capital, um, you're talking specifically in Albany. Uh, well, in this particular case, because I want I want to compare and contrast. Maybe if, if Buffalo is a little bit different, or is it kind of the same? Well, you know, we we have um, organizers in Albany, and we have a team in Albany that when we, for example, we have you know received buses of asylum seekers, and we were you know working with people who are on the ground and trying to cater to legal services, to everything. And, you know, for in Buffalo, for example, the community has, in fact, been welcoming, um, whether that's in Amherst or, or not. Um, obviously, we have seen also not so welcoming incidents. And I think what it is, is that it's not a black and white. Okay. There's not a place that's like just ultimately so good to people and another that isn't what it is i think is always a mixed bag of where you have people who are dedicated to include all of the constituents all of their neighbors all of the newcomers and then you you have people who are a little bit more challenging and i think that's why increasing awareness is so important and empowering the community and not pitting communities against each other but rather being like yeah like when it comes to housing immigrants need housing but so do all New Yorkers, so do all people, humans, right? And and I think that is kind of the the narrative that that we are trying to push forward is we want inclusivity for everybody. Thanks for joining us today. This is what's next on WBFO. More to come right after this.
It's Reading Rainbow's 40th anniversary, and we're celebrating by releasing 40 full episodes of the classic PBS children's series. Look for new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday through February on the Reading Rainbow YouTube channel. Visit readingrainbow.org watch to find family activities for you and your child to do together after watching episodes. Activities are available in both English and Spanish. The episodes are available on YouTube for a limited time, so subscribe so you don't miss any. Join WBFO every Saturday at 6 p.m. for an insightful and enlightening series of audio documentaries from our region that tackle topics such as the environment, health, the world of entertainment, and more. Listen to the WBFO DocuHour every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on WBFO, your NPR station. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We are talking with Hagar Hafez, Manager of Organizing and Strategy for Western New York for the New York Immigration Coalition. Uh, you mentioned incidents, including one, I guess, somewhat notable, it was been in the news here in, uh, locally over the last week or so. And I do believe your ex- uh, executive director, your head of, uh, head of your organization, issued a statement regarding, and I'll, I'll go back to the incident we're talking about, the, the lawsuit uh, that has been filed on behalf of, uh, of some people who are uh, uh, seeking asylum here in Western New York, living at a local, one of the local hotels. And there are accusations there of just tremendous abuse. I'll let people find that on their own. I won't try to paraphrase some mm-hmm. of the things that were going on, but the, it, it's, it's an alarming amount of abuse. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that specifically, but have you heard of other situations where it makes it seem very believable? Yeah, it's absolutely horrific. And yes. Yes, I think, you know, when Where people we, of power are utilizing and yes. and totally abusing people because they have no they have little standing because they're uh, they're an immigrant or a uh, asylum seeker. Absolutely. I mean, being an immigrant is a, is a very very vulnerable situation and I think whether that's in your personal life with everyday people you meet to your boss to anyone you are subject to exploitation when you have no power when you have no ability to advocate for yourself we're talking here about language access to start with right Right. like how are you going to do that without language how are you going to do that when your status is at risk and you're terrified of deportation it's so hard to speak up and it's so terrifying to be in those situations you're at the mercy of whoever Right. And I think that is true for not just immigrants, but I think with systemic barriers and vulnerable, marginalized peoples oftentimes find themselves in the situation where they are exploited. And, you know, it, 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 it is hard. It's difficult, B- largely because, you know, you have new arrivals who are still learning their rights if they have any in this country. So that's. You know, like we, we, we are talking about like different statuses, what, what you have access to, what you don't have access to. But ultimately, the, the question is, are we, you know, doing our best to equip people? 
to be able to speak up for themselves and advocate for themselves? Are we giving them safe spaces to do so? You mentioned awareness, and I want to get into a larger conversation about that. But part of that, the rights that an immigrant does have. Let's make sure we understand or try to understand that as best we can. Because, again, this is something that I think gets lost in rhetoric. Absolutely. Uh, There's no doubt about it. Let's maybe just talk about some of those basic things that, you know, somebody who is here and perhaps seeking asylum, they have certain rights. Let's talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when we talk about that, I, th- I think, like like I mentioned before, each status is so different. Right. And I think that that makes it all, all, all the more complicated, right? So, for example, when you're an asylum seeker, you don't have to tell the police your status. But oftentimes, if you do, you could be in potential danger. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, we, we, the, the, the thing is like with different statuses, like I said, you are eligible for different things. Sure. Um, and so that, that most certainly makes it complicated. I'm going to ask you to give me a general answer. I apologize for that. Oh, but yeah, yeah. But I appreciate the, the clarification. Absolutely. And I think, and I think it's our, you know, in, in my organization specifically, we do a lot of, uh, know your rights sessions and we make sure we sit with people and tell them what they should and shouldn't do, uh, what they should engage in, what they shouldn't engage in. We try our best to empower our community. There's, always so much work to be done um on many fronts um i think when it comes to even like benefits or something like that oftentimes people think like immigrants have access to that but like you know only really refugees have access to to public benefits and if they do it's for a limited amount of years and they would have to work or get citizenship so if you're an elderly immigrant and let's say you're getting disability and you cannot qualify to get your citizenship. You can only be on a green card at the moment. That means you're not qualified for disability anymore. Mm. So there are so many conversations about what immigrants have access to. And currently we are trying for access to representation and language access. We're really doing our best to empower folks. We want people to be able to speak up. And you know what we're saying here with with these priorities is not, hey, give everybody status. It's, hey, give people a chance to be people, advocate for themselves, and be able to be empowered and live with dignity. You know, uh, Hagar, I think you just you just uh, spoiled me, spoiled my question there to a certain <laughs> extent, because I think you had a great general statement about that. But let's talk about awareness then. What people and I'm talking about, we're talking about the residents of Western New York, people who've been here for whether it's 10 years or 50 years or 100 years or whatever the case may be, their families, that they don't understand about what's going on with immigration uh, and, and more specifically, you know, when it comes to asylum seekers, people who, are, who, are, who have fled their countries, their home countries, to come to the United States. What, what is lacking in that conversation? That's such a good question. Um, I think on a personal level, I can say empathy. You know, I spoke a little bit about how you have to put yourself in a situation where you see yourself as susceptible to the loss of another. And and that goes for all marginalized communities. Um, That is a way to understand them. And I think another big part of it is understanding history. 
if you have the capacity, right? So when when I came to this country and, and I knew what I knew about American history, but I didn't really know too much. And I think learning about the labor struggle in history in America informed so much of my understanding of how marginalized people are treated in the United States. And that goes whether it's the workforce who are immigrants or workforce who are people of color. And I think, you know, that is so important. If I'm an immigrant and I'm here and I'm able to grasp these things and I'm able to empathize with, you know, Americans that I've never been in the shoes of, I think we should all allow ourselves to grow and seek that knowledge and seek that perspective and have the important conversations and and just be brave really and not be afraid and I think a lot of the times you know when 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 someone who's marginalized holds someone accountable and they're like hey like this is a microaggression or this is what this could potentially mean like people oftentimes are like oh I didn't mean to say it like this I really didn't mean that and I think that defensiveness stands in the way of true vulnerability and understanding really what you need to do in that moment is just sit there and be a person understand that we are all here with limited Mm -hmm. knowledge and we have so much to learn about each other we have so much to explore about each other and if we really want to live in a world of dignity and equity of where we are all treated as equals right because we are i think that is where it comes from the systems are not equitable enough and the systemic barriers, but in our nature, we are equal. So what we are really trying to understand is not our innate equality, but rather the the systemic barriers that humans have built that make it so hard to see each other as equals, if that it, makes sense. Oh, it, uh, it makes great sense. Uh, how you mentioned about once you started learning about the labor history of the United States. Yeah. That gave you a, a new understanding. Uh-huh. Was it a fearful understanding? Maybe, um, or, and I, 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 I'm putting words in your mouth, so I apologize for that. No. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was fascinating. Okay. I, I came here and I, and I was like, you know, America is a young country. Well, what is there to learn? And, and that was ignorant <laughs> of me. And then I... <laughs> Join the club. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know. Um, but then I had this wonderful professor who uh, was my economics professor, and he taught classical theory. And um, I learned about classical economic theory, and then he taught me American labor history. And I remember dreading it. I was like, ah, you know, I'm more interested in that theory. And he was like, Agar, you're going to love this. And he, you know, gave me a couple book recommendations of different labor movements in the United States about, you know, understanding slavery, understanding really, like, the the timeline and the evolution of everything and i remember being fascinated i remember being like wow there's so much to this it is all connected it is all related to what is happening right now and i you know these these movements inspire me and they make me feel like there's so much work to be done but if one day there was a time where people believed that certain legal things were okay and right now, we're hmm. at a time where the same thing is happening. Right. And we just got to push through. And we just got to keep talking and empowering our workforce, empowering our minority groups, and creating as much coalition as we can, creating as much intersectionality as we can. Because 
one rights of a people's does not exist without the other. And we have seen it throughout the labor history in America, how division really is is a big breaking point to to people's empowerment. So it sounds like, though, obviously, when you look at the history and it's tremendously troubling, especially when I'm sure with fresh eyes. Absolutely. At the same time, it sounds like you see hope in, in the idea that it was a certain way once upon a time, things changed, things can continue to change. I see so much power in people who struggle. I know that there are laws and there are barriers that make and have made me feel extremely powerless in the world, completely out of control. They, they cause a lot of agony in my personal life. And, you know, with the people I work with daily, immigrants, people from the community, I, you know, I worked with serving the community in general, not just immigrants. And what I have seen is I wish I could shake every marginalized person and told them you are the expert on your struggle Mm -hmm. you are the expert on your pain and us as marginalized people and communities of color we are experts on our history and we know the exact data and numbers and understanding of how our power was taken away from us and 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 why things are the way they are right now and i think the worst thing we can do is lose our voice by sitting there and feeling helpless what we should continue to do is fight and organize and have the conversations and 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 really push forward these legislation and 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 mandates that could bring the future of our community so much hope if that makes sense (laughs) yeah it makes total sense no doubt about that Uh, we're coming down to our, our final uh, minutes here with Hagar Hafez, uh, Manager of Organizing and Strategy for Western New York for the New York Immigration Council, or Coalition, I should say. Uh, and uh, Hagar, of course, uh, came to, to, to Buffalo as a, what, were you were heading into college then? Uh, was that what, around the age you were com- when yeah. you came here? Yeah, yeah, like 18. <laughs> what was it like when you first saw a Buffalo winner? Oh, I was so scared. Well, well, the first hour, I was so happy. Okay. The snow was so pretty. Yeah, I was a pretty. child. I was like running around <laughs> having a great time. And then in an hour, I was like, oh, my God, this is terrible. <laughs> Take me back. Um, it, Yeah, it's a lot. It took me like, you know, five to six years to learn the right shoes to wear. Mm. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. Very good. Um, what do you think of, uh, of this area now, now that you've been here for a while? Um, I think I have met very powerful leaders in Buffalo. I think I have met people who are so dedicated to change and are so dedicated to informing people and empowering them. Um, and, you know, I, I've, been in, I've been fortunate to be in so many spaces with a lot of leaders of color, specifically, who have taught me a lot and um, have given me so much hope. And, and we have you know, had many amazing and inspiring conversations together. And and I think that's a very beautiful aspect of Buffalo. Um, And, you know, I cannot ignore like the, the, the way Buffalo is, you know, as a, as a segregated city. Um, But I think with the, the leaders that I have met and and the community and, you know, the, the different diverse and, and beautiful culture that is here, there's so much work to do. 
but I see I could see a very beautiful future where you know it's interesting when you said it like that I I couldn't help but think about uh, the west side of Buffalo I mean I think it's started to change maybe before you maybe even became uh, came to, to to western New York but just to see the the immigrant influx of that particular part of Buffalo yeah. and what it's become now um, is really quite remarkable. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you see that possibility you know, at, elsewhere? Do you see that? Absolutely. Yeah, the West Side is so beautiful. And, and, and you know, the West Side Bazaar has been like a, a, an amazing um You get investment. there ever? You ever get over there? Yeah. Yeah. My oh. mom, I just, yeah, my mom just opened a restaurant really? there. Yeah. Um, it, it's an Egyptian restaurant. You know, they have a new location on, on Niagara Street. But either way, I think... Um, I think what happened to the West Side is what happens when you invest in your communities. Okay. What happened in the West Side is when is is like just a glimpse or a percent or a little, you know, percentage of what is the potential of when you educate, when you protect, when you invest in your community, when you're like, yes, we, you know, we need to focus on these kids' educations. We need to empower our people. Let's let's empower them with their health care. Let's, you know, help these people build dignified and, and healthy living situations. And then in the long term, that's what you see. You see economic revival and booms and, and you see, you know, diversity. And, and yeah, you see, you see a lot of great things. It's interesting. Actually, I, off of uh, the, um, uh, the New York uh, Immigration Coalition website, I think I, I, this was a stat. It was 2015. I can only assume it's in- increased since. Immigrant business owners in New York State accounted for almost 34% of self-employed New York residents, a total of $7.2 billion. And again, that was in 2015. Um, I can only assume those types of numbers are continuing to uh, to increase. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And And that is really what we are trying to get people to see here is immigrants have been a fabric of our community. They have been. Whether they're farm workers, factory workers, business owners, they are here. They are contributing. They are doing the work. And we we want them to be seen and recognized as part of the community and, and treated like they're part of the community. What about for a young kid? I guess we have a younger brother, right? Yeah. So he uh, his experience might have been a little different than, than yours uh, Absolutely. when you guys arrived? Oh, my God. Yeah. Younger, you know. I worked with also um, in the Buffalo Public Schools for a little bit, um, where I was an advocate for refugee children who spoke Arabic, and um, I've, <laughs> I've met so many kids in so many different age periods, and they taught me so much. Yeah, you know? yeah what they, did they were. Teach well, um, I've seen them. I've seen them with such, I've seen some of them with such limited English, for example, who would be in a critical stage, like, you know, they are in middle school, about to go to high school, they're new in the country, and you're placed in schools not based on your knowledge, but based on your age. So a lot of these kids were actually in refugee camps or stuck in different situations for years Mm. without schooling, years. And I would see so much dedication. I would see those kids just sitting there, 
listening, not knowing the language, sitting there, doing their best to translate, ask questions, do their best to equip themselves to be better. I have seen <laughs> some little ones who have made my days so much brighter and just you know like the moment I walk in they would tell me about their experiences back home they would tell me about their friends here and and you know it's not always beautiful they go through so much they go through you know what the average kids go through of bullying and whatnot but just the trauma of of trying to be in a new place and leave your friends behind. A lot of these kids, their friends died back home or they have seen them go through that. They have experienced very extreme situations. And, you know, that that, that is a, a part of the story is that, you know, I've seen 13 and 14 and like even high schoolers who still wet their bed because, you know, they're, they're still in the trauma. And I think, you know, when I see those kids and I see how hopeful and, and what the courage it must take to go through all of this and still, you know, you didn't get to be a kid. You don't have the privilege to worry about trivial stuff. You worried about real things and be here and stand by their parents and empower them when it's not their job. And, you know, still have a smile on their face and have hopes and dreams and want to be all these beautiful things when they grow up. And, you know, it's always fascinating to see kindness come from people who life has been so unkind to. Um, that's what they have taught me. But my brother definitely went through that of where, you know, my brother was born, in fact, in America, but he oh. lived his whole life back home. And he was torn apart when we were leaving. He he missed home every day. He he he. My brother studied very hard and he his dreams when he was a kid was he wanted to go to, to Stanford he wanted you know okay and he came to Buffalo and he was like crying and he was like I'm gonna do my best I still want to go to a big university he went to City Honors I, I remember the day he went to City Honors he was late for registration and he was like I, if I don't go here I'm not gonna go anywhere else and he went in and my brother First, he did his undergrad in MIT in a full scholarship oh. in physics. Oh. <laughs> oh, well, sorry, not MIT, uh, Boston University. But okay. right now he's in MIT for his Ph.D. Sorry, I confused them. <laughs> but in, yeah, That's Ph.D. Right. in physics. But yeah, it took it took a while for him to to get into it and be able to to be here. Wow. Yeah, it's hard. Your parents must be incredibly proud. They, they are. They are. They don't fully, un, you know, my brother, when he got accepted in his MIT PhD program, my parents were like, are you sure you don't want to go to UB? <laughs> <laughs> so, like, they UB's are. UB's great, but MIT has got its own little <laughs> section, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. So it, it is the proud, you know, general proud. It's, yeah. it's very sweet. Yes. Well, um, Hagar, uh, I, I really appreciate the conversation. A final call to action for our listeners when it comes to immigration issues. What do you want to say? You know what? Um, learn as much as you can. Befriend your neighbors. And when you see injustice, do your best to speak up. And lastly, if you're interested in any of our priorities... <laughs> You want to come with us and lobby with us. You want to give a testimony. You know, you work somewhere where you have dealt with immigrants and know what that means. And, you know, even if you're not an immigrant yourself, but you've seen it, you want to talk about it, you want to build bridges, reach out. 
Let's do it. Let's do the work. Excellent. Hagar Hafez, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Hagar is the manager of organizing and strategy for Western New York for the New York Immigration Coalition. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Oleand in WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.